0: Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 26. With me this time is author Double Act, Allian Williamson, Editor-in-Chief of 5 Out of 10. Hello! And Caitlin Tremblay, Writer and Game Maker. Hello! Together, they were the co-authors for the book Escape to Napali: A Journey to the Unreal. So, where did the genesis of the book come from, the story behind its inception? I will let Caitlin tell us part of the story, because she's good at telling it.
1: So I had pitched article idea to Alan for 5 out of 10 about, probably about a year ago this time. And in it I had made extensive references to how much I loved Epic Games Unreal. And I talked quite a bit about it and kind of fangirled all over the place. And then (laughs) So Alan read the pitch, and he really liked it, and he sent me this message, and he was like, well, I really liked your pitch, and I think it's really great, but I don't think you should talk about Unreal, but that's only because I think we should write a book on it. <laughs> and then, so that's kind of how uh, this came about.
2: Yeah, that's the only time I've ever responded to a pitch that way. I don't uh, to everybody, hey, we should write a book. It's uh, <laughs> very much a one-off thing.
1: You don't say that to all the writers? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
2: There <laughs> are a lot more books published than i did but um yeah i think like i think kate's pitch which actually ended up that essay ended up in five out of ten issue ten it was called discovering words but there's something about the pitch idea and i thought oh unreal oh man and then i had so many ideas and the, the memory started to, to flood back a bit and i think there was a bit of back and forth maybe for an email or two before i was like we should write a book on this And then. Yeah. uh, And
1: I I think there was extensive listening to the soundtrack over and over and over again and just being like, ah, the music.
2: (laughs) It's it's funny how like it's not a game that I would think about all the time, but whenever somebody, you know, taps one of those memories, it's like the floodgates have opened and suddenly all these memories are coming back and you've got all these ideas in your head. And I was trying to write them all down. I think that initial email conversation between us was, there was quite a lot of the planning for the book went into that. We talked about all the bits that we really enjoyed and all our favorite levels and all the themes and all the bits that we remembered. So the actual skeleton of the book came about quite quickly.
1: Yeah, and it's all really organic, too. It's just us talking so much about what we loved and what we remembered and what really stuck with us and how this game has kind of like, at least for me, affected a lot of my future experiences with video games. And it's kind of like it came together, I think, before either of us even realized that a book was forming. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's the best way to do it. You wouldn't want to go... I should write a book, and I am going to write it about you. Unreal. You will do. You will do. (laughs) You want something where you have a story you want to tell, and you can't not tell it. It's going to be written down somewhere, so therefore it should go into this book, and I think that's that's the way we approached it. So from then, we wedged it in between 5 out of 10 issues, because June is traditionally my month off, and as you may have guessed, I'm not very good at taking months off because I wrote a book in the same time. But um so we planned it out and then we kind of wrote a couple of the chapters ourselves. We basically divided it pretty much down the middle. There was only one chapter where it was so big and because it was covering the end of the game, there was a lot of themes and we kind of went back and forth in it. And so we wrote various sections. But by and large, Kate wrote half, I wrote half, and then we edited the other person's half. That was how the baby was made.
1: Yeah. The birds and the bees of books <laughs> publishing. Yeah.
2: When a, when a writer and a game love each other very much, um, <laughs> stork comes and drops a fully formed book to your lap.
1: If only.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's quite yeah. a lot of
0: because
1: yeah. I, yeah, I was also working at a publisher, like a book publisher at the same time as writing this book, and I was just like, what is sleeping? Why do I even sleep? What's the point?
0: <laughs> I
2: actually wrote the first, my first chapter I wrote on a work training course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a lot of drinks at this training course, and then I kind of went, I kind of went full Hemingway, and somehow the um, the, they, the chapter that came out at the end of it wasn't total garbage. <laughs> so
0: that was, that was nice. Speaking of Unreal, what specific about the game, because you spoke in general about that it was obviously a, a favorite of both of yours, but what specific about it made you feel like a book was in order?
1: Well, for me personally, Unreal was a huge part of my development as both like a writer and a person who plays games because it was the first game that I ever played kind of on my own. So for context, I grew up with two older brothers who got me into games from like basically from the moment I could hold a controller. And I always played the same games as them, kind of like following in their footsteps. But Unreal was a game that I took and played and that my brothers never got into. And so it became this very special thing for me that I could kind of delve into and make my own and it became this own world of mine for just me to explore and for just me to kind of have like little secrets and little stories that nobody else knows. And it was a really, really special thing for me. But then finding out that other people like Alan had had kind of a similar kind of bond with the game kind of made it kind of made me want to share the stories in a way that other people could pick up and read and be like, Oh yeah, no, this is a special thing.
2: So I guess for me, it was one of the first games I played on the PC We didn't really have a home computer that we used for gaming until probably around '98, whenever Unreal came out. It was one of the first games my dad had bought for me on that computer, and we had this massive 19-inch CRT monitor, which roughly weighed the same amount as a small car. And the thing about Unreal was that, and I think I cover this in the book, was that it was one of the first games where the software 3D acceleration looked the same as the hardware 3D. So it was something like Quake 2 it looks totally different if you're using an actual three D graphics card but Unreal does all this kind of coloured lighting and stuff. So even though my ten year old self didn't know how to set up that game to make it look good, it still did natively. And so it was kind of the first game I'd played that really showed me the potential of what PCs could do and also, you know, the the kind of the world building and the environmental storytelling was way beyond what I'd played before. So I guess like whenever you play the first game, you know, on a new console or a kind of new paradigm, it really... Those games are always really influential. So the first Sonic the Hedgehog was really influential for me. The Bioshock for the Xbox 360 was the first time I'd, you know, got an HD TV and the first game I got for the 360 and that game stuck with me and Unreal is kind of the the PC era equivalent. But I think also it was a game I really enjoyed and it is... I mean, you know, Caitlin had kind of said she'd played it on her own and, you know, I grew up with three brothers and we played a lot of games together but Unreal's very much a solitary experience. It's only whenever they... Branched out into Unreal Tournament, that it became a multiplayer game. So I think, yeah, it was it was a similar kind of thing. It was like we both enjoyed that approach to storytelling, and I mean, we're a similar age, so it probably came at a same a similar sort of time in our lives as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's such a special game too, in the way that it's like its storytelling is so rich, but so held back. Like it doesn't, it never at any point beats you over the head with this, its story. It's, it's just like. I don't know what I'm saying, like environmental storytelling is so pitch perfect in this game and I, I think that's something that's really hard to accomplish and that I don't think a lot of games have achieved in the same way that Unreal does.
2: Pretty much the opposite to Half-Life, which came out the same year. This is one of the things you know, we we tried to avoid talking about Half-Life in the book because it is a much more popular and probably a bit more critically acclaimed game, so we kind of wanted to ignore the elephant in the room. Um <laughs> but something like Half-Life has a, It's got a lot of scripted cutscenes, stories a lot more in your face, and Half-Life formed a blueprint for all of your, your Halo's and Call of Duty's and all the games that came after in terms of the way those games told stories. Whereas Unreal's similar something like System Shock or that kind of Deus Ex type game you know, where you're, you're reading a lot more into it. Obviously, Deus Ex has its own storytelling elements, but there's as much in there as you want to take out of it. You could play Unreal without really knowing the story. You get the rough gist of it, but you don't have to. But one of the things I really like in games is that active exploration and finding every nook and cranny and finding the, the elements of story that people have put in there. And you know, whenever we research the book, we find a lot of like, sort of Easter eggs and things uh, based on like the names of the levels and the names of some of the audio logs and even the, the designers who had written those levels. Um, a lot of that stuff was really interesting.
1: Yeah, and even just like the language that is there that some of like, um, the villains like the Krall speak that we had certain assumptions about what certain <laughs> non-English words meant. Is this the,
2: the harangos? Yeah, the
1: harangos. <laughs> and so there is this one, um, like one of these story logs that you can find all about this kidnapped, uh, Earth girl. And, uh, the villains are talking about how, um, feisty she is and how she, uh, frequently kicks them in the harangos. And me and Alan were like, well, obviously, that's balls. Like,
2: (laughs) why (laughs) why would you think anything else?
1: Exactly. And then we, during our research, found out that, no, like, harangos was actually meant to mean mouth. And it's just like these kind (laughs) of really, these really cool bits of this alien language that was created and never explained in game. It was just this fully functioning world that was so indifferent to whether or not you participated in it or not, which is what I adore about it.
2: Yeah, I think there's one, the harangos thing, is a bit where the, one of the guards says they're going to get de-harangued.
1: And oh, yeah, that would and,
2: and you naturally assume that they're going to be, you know, castrated for their insubordination, <laughs> but actually they're getting their jaw removed, which, you know, is is more of a leap than, than having your, your balls cut off, probably. Um, but
1: that's what's beautiful about the storytelling in the game is that it takes your expectations and it also, like quietly subverts them but only if you are paying attention because otherwise you wouldn't get that right like
2: yeah but i think like i think the the book only works because the game was a really rich seam to mine from yeah totally if we had gone into it and said right we're going to write a book about unreal and then did a bit of research and replayed the game and came up empty then we just wouldn't have done the book the only the only reason we were able to do it so quickly and put so much detail in there and produce something i think is you know Personally, to me, it was it was very you know creatively satisfying. Yeah, uh, the absolutely. only the only reason we could do that is because the game had that richness of story and and world and character to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's kind of the right right game at the right time.
1: <laughs> What's a game like you doing in a bar like this? <laughs> absolutely,
0: absolutely, and the rest the rest is history.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: So, what eventually came out of your take of Unreal in, in this in depth relook? Oh, I'm gonna I've got one of the probably one of the
2: only two hardback copies in existence in front of me, Um, (laughs) because I bought it myself. Um, (laughs) So we've got, I'm just going to manually count down them, we've got 10 chapters, and those are almost like 10 standalone essays. So they go chronologically through the game, but we don't cover everything. So I'm sure quite a lot of people listening to this will have read uh, Brendan Keough's Killing is Harmless, and it is a... Closed reading of the game from start to finish. And this, you know, we deliberately didn't do that. We wanted, to, because you know, some bits we just didn't have much to say. So we kind of look at broad themes and then tie them into parts in the game. So the first chapter was called An Alien in an Alien World. And it was kind of about um, what does it mean to be alien? Um, how do fictions create, you know, what concept of alien things? Um, one of the interesting things about Unreal is that you are an alien. You're an alien. Crash landed on this world. It's not the aliens have invaded and uh, invaded Earth or something like that. So it's quite a, a nice inversion of the formula. You know, all of the weapons are really alien. So there's not a lot of human influence in there. It's it's quite unique in that sense. You can take the next chapter because uh, you, you wrote it.
1: <laughs> I wasn't looking at the table of contents. I was just listening to you. <laughs> oh, okay.
2: that, that's, that's perfectly valid. <laughs>
1: um, where did you leave off? <laughs> um,
2: well, without going through a rundown of a table of contents. Uh, you can you can pick one pick one or two of the chapters and explain what they were about to to get people okay. who are still on the fence about buying this wonderful tome an idea, <laughs> what uh,
1: okay well i was as you were talking about that i was thinking about my favorite chapter that i wrote was called savior and along the lines of you being this alien force here what i came to really appreciate about unreal after writing this book which i didn't realized during my multiple playthroughs was that you're not a hero. So in addition to being an alien in this world, you're also not the power fantasy of a hero, which I thought was really interesting in in that you're not here to save this world and save the race of people who are being oppressed by these evil other people. And you're just this person, you're an escaped prisoner who has crash landed on this planet that you have no idea about. And you have Zero like understanding of the world and zero consequences therein, and so you're just merely trying to survive and trying to escape. And I and I think it's that is this really interesting idea that everything that you're doing is not a heroic gesture; it's just a mere act of survival. And I think uh, that's maybe my favorite takeaway from having written this book about this game.
2: This is what I like: is that whenever you co-author a book with somebody, you learn so much from them that you couldn't possibly know on your own. (laughs) And so I learned a lot more about the game uh, through reading Kate's essays and editing those than I did from writing my own, which is really nice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was a a great shared experience of learning so much about something that I thought I was a complete master of. -hmm. And I think that's what's beautiful about writing a book. Uh, on a video game is that you really get into it and you really discover a lot that you maybe wouldn't have thought about or considered in such detail in any other form. And it really magnified how much I just really love this game.
0: It's a very good game. I like it too. Yeah. (laughs) You had a back and forth discussion on how to talk about the book. What came up in those discussions about like specifically how to talk about the book, how to format the book about this game?
1: Oh, Alan had this really fantastic spreadsheet that was just
0: kind of... So
1: So we want to talk about this idea and we want to talk about this idea and we didn't really have it in any specific order yet. And so we kind of just like idea dumped all of the chapters or things we wanted to discuss. And then we're like, well, I'd like to talk about this or here's this thing that I, I like about this game that I want to talk about, but I'm not sure if I have enough to say about it myself. So what do you think? And it was this really cool sort of, just working through all the possible chapters and ideas, and seeing if we felt qualified to write about them. And then I—I I don't know if any got cut, but I think a couple got melded together. I'm
2: just trying to think about that as well because I am not—I'm actually going to go into the original files here to see if we've got any exclusive goodies for this podcast. Do you know? <laughs> uh, here's a good. Here's a good tip. Do you know how many? How many megabytes of screenshots I took for that book? How many megabytes of screenshots did you take for that book? Five hundred and sixty-one. <laughs> so it's about half a gig of screenshots at twenty-eight eighty by eighteen hundred with all these fancy high-res mods. So let's see. That's the Unreal manual. That's not going to help as much. Oh, oh, right. I've got How about, long is this game? Oh, it's about eight to ten hours. So I've got some really tantalizingly named documents here, including Alan's initial notes, ground rules, and things it would be cool to do. Dot text. <laughs> So are they, the initial notes were, I scribbled them all onto my iPad, and I've got stuff about, I can even see here, uh, right in the middle of the pages, is what does it mean to be alien? What does it mean to be a pilgrim? How does the Unreal Engine influence the design of Unreal? I've got a list of standout levels, and we cover all of them, actually. Oh, yeah. Cool. So I have standout levels. I've got the Sun Spire, the ISV Cran, Chisra Temple, Nileaves Falls. Polly Haven. These won't mean anything to you unless you read the book, so my advice is to buy it. I've got some initial notes that I scribbled down onto a page quite hastily, but this kind of gives you the idea of the genesis of it. So I wrote a quote from Kieran Gillen in his new games journalism manifesto that I think I put into my introduction as well, it was uh, he said you should write travel journalism to imaginary places. So I wrote, um, we are tourists and we are pilgrims. We're traveling both to where we have been and where we've never been before that it's more than blogging, so the book should be holistic, refined, articulate and researched and authoritative, but not necessarily comprehensive, and that we were writing for ourselves and we should accept the narrow range of our audience, and we are a team. So those were the kind of initial rules behind that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, kind, of, the kind of main gist was that what we did was we kind of did it from memory, and I hadn't replayed really the game for years and years and years until we actually started to write the book. So I had just gone through some wikis and things and pulled out levels from there. And as it later transpired, those were indeed the ones that we covered. Mm-hmm. And I've also written the original title for the book. So I had written, yeah, I've got in a Nepali written there. I originally put a pilgrimage to the unreal rather than a journey, but then we kind of, we, one of the essays talks about whether you actually are a pilgrim or not. So it would seem a bit presumptuous to put that in the title. It's always interesting how everybody pronounces it differently because Kate and I always pronounce it. Napoli, but everybody else has got the E called it Napoli. I've heard Napoli. I've heard everything. Yeah, it's, uh, interesting. It probably is a a canonical way to pronounce it, but I don't know and I don't care.
1: Well, I think as the co-authors of the first and only book on Unreal, I think we get to make that canon.
2: Absolutely. As as Wikipedia (laughs) listed authors,
1: no
0: less. So where did the idea of the structure of like multiple individual essays focusing on on different parts come as the structure to the book?
1: Well, I think that came just kind of out of the nature of the game itself and that there's so many disparate and distinct cool things about it that it's not really easy to, it wouldn't make sense to force it into a unified whole discussion. And I think that's kind of what I think is really cool about it is that It's really piecemeal, and there's parts that you can experience in one way that are in no way related to another section of the game, and that was a really big draw for me. And so I feel like structuring it, that made the most sense for people to find what they wanted to read about in the game and pursue that without having to read necessarily everything else that wasn't particularly related to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, every essay touches on a different theme, and that was actually one of the things we did was rather than really picking specific levels we wanted to talk about, we really just picked specific themes and then we picked the level that best... Did that theme, so we you know stuff about the heroic myth, stuff about yeah the nature of storytelling, the nature of level design and, and things like that so
1: and, and also I, I adore maps like maps are just one of my favorite <laughs> aesthetic and narrative items ever in the world, and so what frustrated me at first was that unreal doesn 't have a map it doesn 't have level maps, it doesn 't have a world map, and I was like, how can this thing that I love so much betray me so much by not including a map I and so it. I wrote and so I got to write an entire chapter about the function of not having a map and how this works narratively within this game of you being uh an alien on an alien planet and it actually ended up being one of my favorite chapters and that was just bred purely from my moment of like petulant frustration being like i want a map why is there no map
2: lots <laughs> well, of sometimes sometimes the things you get annoyed about as a child you know there's a there's an inner truth to that it just takes you about another 20 years to actually figure out what that truth is yeah exactly <laughs> one of the things i remember about unreal was that i found a lot of the weapons completely useless Things like there's a, there's one called the Stinger, which is the it's, it's best animation ever, where whenever you select the Stinger, the, the belt of ammo kind of ripples out the end of the barrel like a snake, and I just love it. Sometimes I'll just switch over and over just to watch that. But but anyway, that's a little too much uh, on the side. But a lot of those weapons I find really difficult to use, and it's only later in writing the book and writing about the way the different weapons work that I can understand that, and I do feel justified. I, I appreciate them a bit more now, but there's things like that where you do feel like you're mining into your childhood a bit you're, you're coming back to this thing that you have a lot of memories of most of which i think were fairly reasonable there wasn't any point at which i replayed unreal and thought wow i get this totally totally wrong um yeah, absolutely. which is good but it's it's nice because you get to revisit nostalgia in a way that is respectful of your own memories but it also gives you a whole new spin on things and so now whenever i think about unreal I've got these kind of two types of nostalgia. I've got the nostalgia of originally playing it when I was a kid, and I've also got the nostalgia of writing the book many years later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it it was a nostalgia too that informed a lot of my further creative thinking in terms of my writing or my own game design and things like that. So,
0: what is the work that you put into creating this book? You you talked about like multiple replays of Unreal.
2: I played about I think it's about twenty to twenty five hours of it.
0: And like we both played through the game,
2: each, and it was and that was good because I was sending Kate uh, pictures of my computer screen as I got to various levels cause I was a little bit ahead of her. Going, I'm at the mothership, I'm at the castle. Oh my god! Yeah, I think I spent about twenty to twenty five hours playing it, and a lot of that time was, there was a bit of time spent screenshotting and clipping outside of the levels to see if I could find anything interesting. And each of those essays. Probably the same length of time as a 5 out of 10 feature would take. So there's about, each chapter is about, I'd say about 2,000 to 2,500 words. So yeah, yeah, just imagine yourself writing one freelance feature and then doing that five times and then reading somebody (laughs) else's five times.
1: And I spent a ton of time doing like extra research and not even just on articles or walkthroughs written about Unreal specifically, but just anything anybody had written about certain topics in video games so like one of my chapters talks about the feeling of the sublime in this game and Mm -hmm. just i just spent like hours and hours reading as much as i could that people have talked about sublime in like skyrim or
2: was that rick lane's piece for the escapist yeah Yeah. Um,
1: and just like everybody's articles on like the function of maps in video games and just so it was a lot of research not even just about unreal just about the way we talk about games
2: yeah, I got a book on architecture out of the, uh, out of the library. Yeah. It was a book on fic- fictional architectures. Um, there's these really cool uh, punk architects in England in the 1960s called Archigram, and they made up all these ideas for fictional architectures, like cities that could just take off and fly or walk to various areas to stimulate economic growth. That's where the idea of like the Arcologies in SimCity 2000 came from. So, yeah. It was a, it, there was, was a lot of uh, reading around things and reading various types of, of myths, partly because when you're, you're writing a book, you don't want to write a big pile of nonsense. And I think that whenever you're writing a blog piece, you can, to an extent, get away with it because it's not being scrutinized so much. And then whenever you go to, say, a feature we're doing in 5 out of 10, that requires an extra level of fact-checking because you want it to, well, you know, people are paying for it, but also because you want it to stand the test of time. So your arguments need to have a bit more clout to them. And then whenever you go into a book, you're like, whoa, well, this thing's going to go into print. <laughs> this is going to be around potentially forever. So you really need to make sure you're getting it right there. And that, that's a big challenge is that, you know, we're, we're quite strict with the, the copy editing and the standards yeah. that we have for ourselves. And I think quite a lot of it was um, going back and editing it again and again and again at a word by word level kind of scrutinizing it to make sure it was everything we wanted it to be. I think that comes across in the book. That's why a year later we can look back on
0: it fondly rather than going, oh, God, I can't believe I wrote that. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Given that you're actually the first co-authors I've had on this Yay. podcast, how did keeping the lines of communication open work out during the process of writing the book?
1: Fairly yeah, well. Could, I think totally, we were bad, pretty much, yes. yeah, in non-stop communication. Via every medium possible, <laughs> I
2: think. Skype when we should have been working at our day jobs, all kinds of things. It was it was okay because the time zone difference between us is five hours, so that wasn't too bad. But yeah, generally it was okay. I mean, we had quite a bit of back and forth over like Skype and various types of messaging services. I think it's like it's actually really easy to work collaboratively now. I mean, you know, kind of I'm used with five out of ten to working with people from all around the world. But we, yeah. I think, like I'm not. I think I'm probably speaking for both of us when I say that we have a really good, we had an immediately good working relationship Mm -hmm. that I don't think I could have got away with, with very few other people. It was, it was, uh, that's what made it so pleasurable to do Um, and that's what allowed us to get it done within two or three months.
1: Yeah. And I also think the fact that we are both like full-time professional editors mm-hmm. kind of helped speed that along as well because yeah. we both kind of had expectations. Like yeah. I know personally, like the expectations that I would have for say the authors that I worked with at the publishing house I was at kind of uh, helped me streamline a lot of efficiency issues. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have any efficiency issues, but like kind of got me in that mind. Like, okay, this is, this is a book. It's like any other book I've edited and we'll just, we'll do it. And so we did.
2: Yeah. And then I think, like, also on the logistics side, the fact that I've been doing 5 out of 10 for a while was obviously really helpful with that because I knew exactly how long it would take to lay out the page designs and I knew what I was going to have to do. One thing that was different with Escape to Nepali was that we did print, 5 out of 10 digit lonely. This was the first time we'd done print. So the big surprise was that I had never mentioned print to Caitlin, but whenever I started designing it, I designed it for print. So what I did was I told her about two days before we launched it that, in fact, it had been designed for print all along and you're going to be able to buy it. And that's quite fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's pretty great. But
2: that has um, lots of different issues. You know, you have to worry about your bleeds and margins and how do fonts look when you print them out? What's the size of the text going to look like? How are the images going to look? How do they look in the paperback book, which has grayscale images? Like, so, and, and I went and manually tweaked every single picture in the book to make sure it looked good in grayscale. So some of the pictures, yeah. like if you, if you took the two side by side, they, some of the screenshots are almost different expressions of the different moods, depending on what <laughs> version of the book you read.
1: Yeah. And, and like, I think it's really worth just saying like how professional this was, like as much as we're friends and this was a fun thing for friends to do, it was still very much a professional project. And yeah. I, I think kind of approaching it from that point of view, it was also Kind of what helped it become a thing, become the thing that it did in the three months that it took us to do this.
2: <laughs> yeah, but well we did, but well we did begin with the end in mind, and we mm-hmm. decided it was going, you know, it was going to come out in June. But here it is. So we had a we had a firm deadline, and the fact we planned it knew exactly what we wanted to get out of it made it so much easier.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: And yeah, there was a there was a hard deadline because I finished the InDesign files at I think about three four a.m. on a Monday. Which certainly sounds like a typical Alan production,
1: and, <laughs>
2: and yeah. I sent the yeah sent the InDesign proofs off to the publishing company, ordered a copy which is sent to Soa Kareem's house <laughs> because I didn't want Caitlin to know I'd ordered one, and uh, <laughs> and then I flew to Canada, <laughs> so that was a that was a that was a hell of a last few days, but it was nice then because um, obviously we met up whenever I was in Toronto, uh, so it was nice to actually properly celebrate the launch of it then.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But, uh, yeah, hell of an adventure. It was a bit unreal at times.
1: <laughs> <Wait.
2: laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually have that planned. It just came spontaneously and I thought, I'm just, I don't care. I don't care. I <laughs> have <That> no shame.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely a great adventure Reading it. It was really, really fantastic and a lot of fun.
0: Alright, speaking of design, I'm looking at the, the cover right now and it's it's definitely unique because it actually looks like a painting. You can even see the many of the brush strokes are in, in there. Uh,
1: it is, in fact, a painting that I did, <laughs> and I don't... It's probably the only thing I look at now, and I'm just like, I wish I would have been better. <laughs> no, I really,
2: I really like the cover. because I like it because it's not gamey, and I think that was... Whenever we talked about the cover, you, know, you said you did painting stuff before, and I said, well, let's make something that's... It's not just a big picture of a video game. Let's do something that's you know a bit more interesting and a bit more artistic because that's what that's the kind of audience we wrote it for. I mean, obviously, people that play a lot of games are going to like it, but we don't want people that don't like games to be scared away. I think like that was probably one thing we didn't achieve with the book was that I, if, if I'm being honest, I can't see people that don't. Play video games are of much interest, in them I can't see them reading through it. I know my granny read the introduction and felt a bit confused, and I think that's as far as she got. But you know the audience just determines the level of detail you get into. If we had written it for an audience of people who had never played games before, then there's a lot of things we just wouldn't have been able to say there's a lot of There's quite a lot of assumed knowledge you need to put into that so it's not a regret so much as a as an interesting choice in design, but no, the the cover um yeah it didn't take you very long. You, you you looked it up quite quickly and it looked it looked immediately good.
1: Mm, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then we uh, and, the,
2: and then we just photoshopped and chopped a bit and then I picked that font that everybody uses everywhere. But uh, yeah, I think I think it, I think it came together quite well. And then um, I'm not sure if you can see the back of it, Eric, but it's got the book's mascot, which is this. Um, <laughs> it's this one scar. Let's uh, the J is silent. Um, It's this one Scar you meet later in the game and then taking a screenshot of him and put it in the original design documents and he was nicknamed Uncle Scar. So Uncle Scar's in the back is a kind of an in-joke to ourselves. But yeah, that would, image kind of stuck with us a lot of writing the book. But uh, the, the cover's great. If you don't like it anymore, Kate, I think that's unfortunate because I have always thought it was good. So there.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> 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 it's, yeah, it's not that I don't like it. I think it's just that I'm really extra hard on myself for paintings and all that jazz, so...
2: <laughs> uh, but I guess the point is it's different. Like, when you see a lot mm-hmm. of covers, even the video game books, you know, you get quite a lot of pixelarty-type things and you've got the usual tropes of your your Space Invaders and your, your Pac-Mans and things. And I think one yeah. thing one thing that cover does achieve is it looks different. It looks a bit alien. Like, you've got these two weird planets on the front. Um, so I think it, it does... The two, the twin moons of Nepali. Sorry, sorry.
1: Um <laughs> well, a moon, I like a moon
2: Could be a planet, can't it? No, is that No, 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 no,
1: no. moons. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, but that's kind of what I had wanted to address with it. Because whenever I thought about Unreal as an adult, before having replayed it, before having written this book, was just about like how gorgeous it was. Just like the skies and the colors, and it was this really, really, really beautiful setting. And I think that's kind of what I had wanted to achieve in the cover art was not so much like, oh, this is a book about video games, but like, this is a book about a beautiful place. Like, uh, it's so I did, I painted the cover in watercolor, which is like, typically what I would use for like landscapes and stuff. And I kind of really wanted to carry that kind of old, like classical feel to this. Like, this is, this is a place unlike any other place that somebody would have sat down and painted
2: and also, paintings don't age in the same way that game graphics do. And that's one of the things about Unreal is that, like, from a kind of artistic point of view, it hasn't aged badly at all for a game that's, you know, nearly 20 years old. It actually still, like, it's got a really strong art direction to it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, there's another reason why the cover's quite fitting. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, hopefully I did that feeling justice.
0: <laughs> so, Caitlin. Yes. Now comes the fluff question. All right. What is your favorite video game of all time?
1: Oh, okay. Shining oh Force. <laughs> I know, I know. I don't <laughs> understand real, but it's not <laughs> Unreal's Top five, but uh shining force, shining force is my favorite game of all time. <laughs> yeah. It's the... just going
0: to leave it at that.
1: No, no, no. I'm trying to think of more. What else to talk about? It's, the 1992, 1993, I can't remember exactly when it came out, Psychogenesis top-down RPG strategy game. And it was actually a game that I had played with my brothers over and over again. And uh it's become this, like, rite of passage in my family that whenever me or my brothers are like are with a new partner that we're serious about we somehow end up making them watch us play an entire game of shining force (laughs) it's just like this initiation and sharing of this really special moment but it's this really fantastic game that is so so much fun to play and also really neat on a lot of levels like it's fairly feminist in a lot of ways too like it doesn't fall victim to a lot of stereotypical story story storylines of like, Oh, the princess is captured and you have to save her. Like in shining force, the princess is this badass white haired mage who is like, no, my dad's kidnapped. I'm going to come and help you fight and find him. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to be the hero of the story. And it's just, it's a really, really great, great game. But uh yeah, I, I replay it like every six months. <laughs> I'm just so addicted. My brothers and I will text each other our final lineup of our teams and we'll always fight because I always use at least two healers and my brother thinks that's the most absurd thing he's ever heard of.
2: So Folks <laughs> need healers? What? Folks need healers.
1: Yeah, and you usually I usually do like a divide and conquer tactic, right? So you flank your enemy and you need a healer for each groove. Otherwise what are you gonna do?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot.
1: Not a lot. <laughs> yeah so yeah so in a lot of ways a lot like the specialness around unreal shining force has a lot of those kind of feelings for me also
0: thank you both for talking with me today thank you caitlin tremblay you're
1: welcome thanks for having me
0: and alan williamson
1: oh
2: thanks for having me too and uh you'll be hearing from me again probably in about five minutes depending on where you stitch together this podcast (laughs) Uh, it's been a blast
1: it has been a lot of fun no, nah, it's
2: been good. It's good to look. It's good to look back at the book one year later, and uh, and uh, first of all, to not hate it, but also to kind of look back at what was what was good about it. So it, I not like to call you, people always call these things post mortems. I don't like to call the post mortem because it's not dead. <laughs> it's like very very much alive and good. It's fun to look at it again. So thanks for thanks for asking. Me.